seat-belted next to me, riding shotgun. Literally. He had an old Remington M10 12-gauge pump-action shotgun lying across the lap of his yellow slicker. Ames seldom spoke. He had said almost all he had to say in his seventy-four years of life. Ames looked like an aged Gary Cooper with long white hair and a face of sound leather. He knew how to use a gun, though he was not supposed to have one. Ames had come to Sarasota three years earlier in search of his business partner, who had run off with all the money from the sale of their business back in Arizona. Ames and his partner had gone out to the white sand behind the trees on South Lido Beach and had an old-fashioned shootout. Ames won. The judge called it justifiable homicide and gave Ames a suspended sentence for carrying an illegal firearm. There are actually laws about dueling in Florida, but the judge wasn't about to invoke them. The partner fired first. Actually, the partner fired four times before Ames shot him. I was there. I testified on his behalf. Ames thinks I saved him from old Sparky. I made a turn off the highway at Ellington, saw the huge shopping mall I've never been to flash by me, and headed west toward Palmetto. Past the Gamble Mansion, preserved as it had been when slaves lived in shacks, and the second floor was reached by ladders that could be pulled up in case the Seminoles attacked. Past the tomato-packing plants, tiendas, and pawn shops where the migrant Hispanic laborers worked and shopped. By the time I had made a turn and headed north on Tamiami Trail, I was sure we were going to be too late. It began to rain. It began to rain hard. Summer was the time for rain on the Gulf Coast. But weather truths like human ones had begun to change here long before I arrived. My windshield wipers worked. I was driving a newly rented white Geo Metro, which wanted to leave the road with every blast of wind. I had an address and only a general idea of where I was going, but with a turn again I knew I was in Palmetto. Palm trees went wild in the wind. The streets began to flood. Traffic slowed to a crawl. People, all black, ran for cover or home. I drove, trying to see street signs, and passed the one I was looking for. I went to the next corner and turned left around a battered green Chevy that was stalled in a deep puddle. The driver was an old black woman with gray hair. I caught just a glimpse of her, but I could see that she was sitting in a state of near-perfect calm. She had been through this before. She had been through much worse before. So would I. She would endure. I probably would, too. I found the house whose address I had been carrying around for three days. It was dark. The morning was almost as dark, with black, driving rain. A pickup truck with a tow winch was parked in the driveway. The house was a one-story cinder block bunker. There was no grass on the place where a lawn should be. There was just a thin lake of rainwater with bits of debris, dirt, beer bottles, and rocks peeking out. I turned off Dr. Laura in mid-sentence as she told the weeping young woman to stop crying and take charge of her life. She could have been talking to me. 
Ames and I got out of the car and I was soaked deep as I hurried to the front door of the house. Ames, yellow slicker protecting him, walked cradling the shotgun, right hand at the trigger. Lightning crackled and struck somewhere on the other side of the nearby Manatee River. I knocked. Thunder above, the noise of pelting rain. My feet were getting soaked through my shoes. I knocked louder. No answer. I didn't expect one. I tried the doorknob. Since the rain was knocking at the door, too, I didn't think any fingerprints remained on the knob. I was breaking the law. I should have called the police hours ago, but the police were not happy with me at the moment. The door wasn't locked. I started in, but Ames put out a long, lean arm to hold me back so he could enter first. This was the home, well, the house, of a dangerous man, a man who had... Later. I'll talk about it later. Now I followed Ames inside. There were no lights on, but it was still day, and in spite of the storm there was enough light so that I could see faintly. The rain pounded on the roof, demanding to be let in, demanding to carry away this concrete hell. A sofa and unmatched cushioned chair and a metal folding chair were covered with dirty clothes, full ashtrays and empty Dr. Pepper cans and amber beer bottles. Maybe he hadn't been here when the knock had come, even though his truck was. Maybe he was away somewhere. A friend if he had one, had picked him up, and they were out looking for trouble. Or for me. Here, said Ames in his raspy voice as he stepped over the debris and through an open door. I followed him into a kitchen that smelled like a portalette at a county fair. Dishes, food in the sink, an overflowing bag of garbage, and a body on the floor. I turned on the light. A large roach scurried out of the garbage bag and headed for the darkness. There was blood. Damp. Fresh. Ames looked down at the body, around the room, and shook his head. The shake was hardly more than a tick, but I knew Ames McKinney. He hated filth, human and otherwise. Let's go, I said, turning off the light. There was a telephone in the living room, but I couldn't bring myself to stay here any longer, and I didn't want to report finding my third corpse in four days. I didn't search the place. I didn't go into the bedrooms. I knew what I would see. I just wanted to get out. Maybe I would call the police from my office when I was dry and I wasn't shaking Maybe I would call and tell them a story. It wouldn't be the truth, so I needed time to make it up. The rain was heavier. I had to move slowly, going back to the car where the rising water was now up to mid-hubcap. I wondered if any neighbors had seen us go into the house. I wondered if any neighbors had seen someone go in an hour or two before us. I wondered if anyone in this neighborhood would tell, even if they had seen the murder on their front lawn. Ames and I got in the car, and I drove slowly through heavy rain that would move the waste, but not wash it away. 
My name is Lou Finesca. The crumbs of Gretel that had led me to that house had begun to drop four days earlier when... Chapter One Hot in here. She looked around my tiny office, trying not to show uncertainty and disapproval. Air conditioner doesn't work, I said. Then why do you leave it on? Fan makes the air move a little. Your daughter is missing? She nodded. So far all I had from her was that her daughter, Adele, was missing and that the woman's name was Beryl. She hadn't given a last name yet. She was holding that back till she decided if she was going to trust me with it. Beryl was about forty, with dark hair cut short, on the thin side, and she was wearing a serious but slightly shabby loose-fitting blue dress with a belt and no style. She kept her purse on her knees and her knees tight and together. She had nice blue eyes and had probably once been very pretty. She also had a blue-yellow bruise on her cheek the size of a large peach. I had somewhere I had to be in a little over an hour, but I couldn't bring myself to hurry this woman. She needed to take her time. She needed someone to listen to her story. I have a picture, she said, opening her purse. I waited. The air conditioner buzzed, and I pretended it wasn't hot. Here. She handed me a little photograph that looked as if it were taken in one of those automatic camera booths you find in malls. The girl was definitely pretty. She had blonde, straight hair, was wearing a green sweater, and showed a fine set of white teeth.